Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. If you have followed this show since the beginning, you'll know I love talking about the work of teaching about religion in schools and universities. I started this show in episode two by talking to my mentor, George Frizzell, now retired from Columbia Public Schools in Missouri. And I've since gone on to talk education with the journalist and author, Linda K. Wertheimer, Ben Marcus and Dr. Charles Haynes from the Religious Freedom Center, Andrew Mark Henry from the YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast, and other educators of religion who I feel are doing tremendous work like John Camardella, Dr. Chris Jones, and Mr. George Coe. I consider these episodes as an ongoing mini-series of the work of religious literacy education in elementary through college-aged students. So today is another episode with a teacher, but it features one teacher's professional development efforts at helping his teaching colleagues gain better religious literacy so they can better reach the needs of all students. For anyone in the field of religious studies teaching, Mr. Chris Murray is quite recognizable as a teacher trainer and religious literacy aficionado and proponent. If you want to read about Chris's work, a great place to start would be a July 2019 Washington Post article titled, Religion in School Can Be Complicated, So Teachers Went to Class, by Julie Zosmer. Mr. Murray encourages his colleagues to continue learning and asking questions so they can better serve all students and their communities. You can find Chris Murray on Twitter at Mr. Murray Tweets. You can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. It's a pleasure to have Chris on the show to talk teaching. So without further delay, here's my conversation on religious literacy and teacher education, Mr. Chris Murray. Thanks for having me. Um, big fan of uh, the podcast and uh, honored to be here. So can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit? Sure. So uh, my name is Chris Murray. I'm a classroom teacher in my 15th year in the classroom. Uh, I currently teach social studies at Stone Ridge School of the Sacred Heart, uh, an all-girls Catholic school uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, and for 13 years, I taught in the public school system in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, where I taught a wide variety of social studies courses. In addition to that, I, uh, the reason I'm here on this uh, podcast is that I designed and facilitate a professional development course entitled Religious Literacy for Educators for Montgomery County Public School um, Teachers, which just wrapped its 11th uh, cohort uh, this uh, just a, earlier this month. Awesome. Um, so, I'm curious about if you have any early memories about how you and I became aware of each other, because I've been doing this podcast since August of 2017, and I've been active on Twitter that entire time. And I know that somewhere along the way, um, you and I sort of found each other on Twitter. Do you remember how on, how any of that came about by chance? Yeah. So, Greg, yeah, it's, it's interesting looking at the timeline. So, well, you're launching your, you know, now, you know, well-established podcast. I was launching the summer course the same summer, uh, and then uh, about a year into it. So 
you know, via Twitter and the you know, often uh, silos that we find mm-hmm. ourselves in, um, I definitely kept on running into your your work as well as as your podcasts began to accumulate over 2017. I started using them in the classroom as well as my uh, background while I was teaching uh, my students about it. So I think I reached out in the summer of 2018 to you uh, just to introduce ourselves and to uh, let you know how much of a fan I was of the podcast. Awesome. Well, and uh, I know that we've been meaning to have you on the show for a long time. How many times have I canceled on you now? Because I, <laughs> I had I had to recently cancel on you because I got called unexpectedly for jury duty in Western New York, and so I had to go and sit in a jury waiting room to go through the jury selection process uh, right when we were supposed to be conversing. So, how many times have I have we supposed to do this now? Yeah, I don't. I don't. Don't count those. As, as we both know from from doing this, you have to be flexible and you understand uh, people's schedules quite a bit in uh, our line of work. So absolutely uh, cool. Well, I appreciate you sticking with me for uh, multiple cancellations and getting on the show finally. Um, so, Chris, why do you care about religion? What is it about this topic, this subject, that drives your your curiosity, your passion, and can, makes you continue to want to reach people? Yeah, I think, you know, listening to your stories over the, the years as well, I think we have a similar path. Um, uh, I came at it from a, a very academic uh, approach at first, um, you know, just as a social science. So I, I offered a variety of elective courses for our students at Walter Johnson High School. And uh, World Religions was one I thought would be a, a fascinating way for me to uh, learn more about World Religions. Um, so I offered uh, an elective course for the first time in the, the fall of 2009, um, but I didn't know very much, so I had to reach out to my community. Uh, and then over the first several years, I was getting a foundation about religion. Um, it started to sprout into a wide variety. I started seeing how religion was not just a set of beliefs that uh, my students had um, or communities did on a Sunday or Friday night or Saturday. So um, as my understanding of religions became more complex, I realized that um, it was more important than ever to share that uh, with a wide variety of educators and students uh, about the complexities uh, that are world religions. Did you have any like undergraduate exposure to religious studies courses or anything like that? Did you were you coming at this like like I did? Like I only had a few in undergraduate, and I was coming at this just because I liked the content. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, the the only course I so I went to I started at a Catholic uh, small Catholic college where we were required to take two theology courses. So I took um, an intro to the New Testament, I believe, with a, a nun. Um, and then when I transferred after September 11th, um, there was quite a bit about uh, Islam on the news. So I took the intro to Islam class. And that might have been my first um, kind of real awakening into looking at religion more in a three-dimensional um, approach than yeah. uh, my previous classes. So, But that was it. Then I was out of uh, school and in the classroom. So um, now I was just kind of learning from... Uh, just uh, from people around and, and taking PDs when I had an opportunity to. So shout out to the Religious Freedom Center. They really helped give me a strong foundation uh, in their online classes. 
Nice. Are you in the, so you're in Maryland, right? Correct. So you've had a lot of exposure to the work of Charles Haynes and Ben Marcus and everybody over there over the years then, yeah? Yep. Awesome. Yep. They're uh, they're friends of the podcast, past guests, uh, frequent collaborators. I'm just, it, it, our circle is small, you know what I mean? Like we travel right. in a small circle, but the work that people are doing is just unbelievable. Absolutely. Awesome. So um, tell me a little bit about the concept of what religious literacy means to you. Like, so think about everybody, young, old, and everywhere in between. What does religious literacy mean to you and why do you care about it? Yeah, that's a great, um, so that was definitely the buzzword, right? Um, and it's still, I think, to a degree, um, the buzzword when um, I started to take this out of the classroom and try to uh, put it into an educational place. For me, religious literacy is the concept of, of understanding the complexities of religion, um, sitting down and listening, um, and allowing your preconceptions of what you think religion uh, is and can be uh, just kind of uh, allowing your uh, yourself to um, see religion in a new new light that allows for uh, individuals to come at religion how they uh, want to come at religion. So as a classroom teacher myself, I'm always curious about what other teachers do in their rooms. So say you have like a day one of a religious literacy or a religious studies class in a high school or in adult education. What is the way, do you have any activities that you do that sort of allow people to explore their preconceived biases or assumptions about what particular religions are? Sure, yeah. So the first day is always um, a fun day. You know, luckily over time, as you, you kind of build up a reputation into a um, you know, space, people kind of have some ideas what they're coming into. But, oh yeah, day one are always kind of the breakdown, you know, the the concept you come in with your conceptions and and we're going to challenge them. And then at the same time, make sure it's, it's key on that first day to create that safe space and, and let people know that this is going to be a, a space where they can uh, question uh, frequently um, and without judgment. Um, you know, I hear from teachers all the time that um, they don't ask questions because they don't want to be labeled. Even my students, my, my teenage students, they, they talk about how uh, they've had friends of different religious backgrounds, but they never asked a question because they didn't want to, mm. you know, step into that sphere. So that's always the first day is the idea of to um, put them in a place where talking about religion is not a faux pas. They, they can have discussions and there's no such thing as a dumb question. Mm. Um, so that's always day one, you know. Um, and then once people are comfortable with that, that they don't have to know things or aren't going to be labeled uh, for not knowing something or or sharing their preconception about uh, a group, um, it, it's all from there. It's a, usually a great semester or um, 15 weeks or a week in the summertime is what we do. Awesome. And so how did the course aimed at building the, the religious literacy of teachers come about? Because I know that you transitioned to a different school a couple of years back. So your high school religious studies class is currently on hold. However, you are training teachers. How did that training course come about? Because you're the first like teacher educator I think I've come across for this show. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that came with a so I started teaching the course for high school students in fall of 2009. And mm -hmm. by the summer of 2016, I was comfortable enough and well-connected with uh, 
the religious communities of Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, and that happened to be the year where Montgomery County School Board uh, decided um, that they were going to remove the religious labels from the school calendar. Mm. So to set up the, the situation here, so I grew up in Montgomery County, and public schools always had off. It. Of course, we have Christmas off for the federal holiday. We have Easter as a state holiday um, in Maryland. And ever since I was a kid, um, the Jewish community in Montgomery County had advocated for and successfully got uh, Yom Kippur and, and Rosh Hashanah as days off um, for our school system. So as diversity has um, come to Montgomery County and we've become a much more diverse uh, community, other religious minority groups have advocated for their own uh, exemptions and, and the opportunity to have days off. So um, this set up a whole um, situation, as you can imagine, from the left and the right to kind of exploit Montgomery County's, um, in my opinion, really inability to um, address this issue in a uh, First Amendment uh, friendly and kind of collaborative way. So uh, I took advantage of their kind of uh, poorly uh, executed decision. Uh, and so I went to the uh, superintendent the night there was this, there was a meeting afterwards because no one in the community was happy with this. Uh, Fox News picked up on the story and, and talked about how Montgomery County was um, a war on Christmas. Mm. Um, so I, I took this opportunity to, um, present the, the superintendent. So we're, we're a massive school system. We have, uh, uh 160,000 kids. Wow. We have, yeah, we have 10,000 staff. So I, you don't get a chance to talk to a superintendent very often. So I went up to the superintendent after a town hall and said, you know, I'd like to introduce myself and I have a, a, a way that we can kind of get on more of the proactive side of this and. Uh, if you let me, I would love to design a <clears throat> professional development for the for teachers. And so it took about a year to uh, get everything put together through the county and then get it to the state level to get approval. And then we were, were launched about a year later. So we had our first cohort of 24 uh, kindergarten through uh, high school teachers uh, taking the, the, the kind of pilot. Is it like a once a week kind of class? So in the original... Um, uh, idea. It's a 45-hour class. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's in the summertime, we designed it as a week-long and super intensive course. Mm -hmm. And then I figured I, I might be able to do this as a, uh, a year-long class, too. So we split it up. So then I went into a 15-week course. And, um, and then we've been offering it now um, once in the summertime and then once in the fall, once in the spring since. What is the progression of the class? Like, do you do you have like sort of like organized under like units, so to speak, as you go through like different religious traditions? How have you organized the course? Yeah, so I, I tend to when I was in the classroom, I definitely like to set some type of uh, structure in terms of either geographically, chronologically. Um, the way that I think it works for school systems is you you really have to make it as authentic as possible. So I try to reach out to communities, especially ones that have felt marginalized or that uh, are reporting uh, increased um, acts of uh, bias against them. Um, so my my efforts the last couple of years have really been to reach out to our evangelical uh, communities in the area where so I'm in a very liberal 
uh, part of uh, America where I think evangelical has gotten a very uh, negative term. And even so, I, I, most of our evangelicals in this area won't use that term because it's become so uh, politicized. So, um, no, I, I, I mean, we're always for changing it up depending on kind of where, because the end goal is to make students' experiences uh, better. So, um, yeah. Excellent. Um, how many teachers would you say that you've reached in the time that the course has been running for the teachers specifically? Yeah. So we just uh, crossed the 300 uh, staff threshold. What's great about the course is it's offered to anyone in the school system. So in addition to, to teachers, um, and we haven't really cracked the administrator pool yet, but uh, I found some of our best success has been with um, our um, occupational therapists or physical therapists. So we have, as you know, from um, public school systems, I mean, public education starts as early as three years old if you qualify for uh, an IEP. And so mm. we have we have staff members going out into homes. And that has been probably one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had is that uh, these staff members that are not trained in all this cultural competency are finding themselves entering people's you know intimate space of their homes in a very vulnerable age when they're uh, discovering that their child has a significant enough uh, learning um, impairment that they, they're reaching out to the community. So um, that's been probably one of the coolest things to see how uh, much that support staff has appreciated learning about um, people because they, they interact on a, a far deeper level than I've ever done with um, uh, people in the county. Excellent. I mean, that is such an important example as well, because going into somebody's home, you see another side of their life that you would never see at school, where you have that institutional divide between home and school. And so, I mean, that is a tremendously huge benefit that I wouldn't have even thought about, really. So I'm really glad you shared that example. Do you have any examples of, like, way that classroom teachers have... Um, implemented any pedagogical changes in their classroom uh, based on their own new burgeoning religious literacy? Are there any classroom success stories too? Um, yeah. So I think, you know, especially for the elementary the, um, and, and librarians have been a great um, group. Um, and that's what I love about the course is that the, the county has made it in a way that it's it's not pigeonholed for certain uh, teachers. So I'd say librarians have been really fun to see as they have um, become more aware of um, different groups and uh, have I've been able to connect them to, you know, good quality uh, literature to put into their libraries because I have to give the librarians a, a huge credit in terms of they work very hard to um, as they, their expression they use there is to, to make libraries a mirror, not a window, um, so that when students walk into their library, they can find a children's book that looks like uh, them or speaks to their experiences. So that's been really, really cool, I think. Um, uh, and then that just bleeds into the uh, classroom teacher in the elementary school who now has the resource so that that uh, girl wearing a hijab is not uh, seen as alone, or the uh, the young sick boy wearing a, a putka is not um, alone, and, and his classmates now have a, more of a context to, to put him in. 
Nice. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you'd like to create authentic experiences for your teachers that take your your training institute. Um, do you bring in like community members to do like Q and A? Do you go out into the community with your cohort of teachers? What are the what are some of the most authentic experiences that you feel you're able to offer <clears throat> as the facilitator? Yeah. So that's been always a you know always a challenge because there's there are several schools that thought in the um, religious literacy kind of uh, academic side of this. Um, you know, when the story broke in the post about what I was doing, uh, there was definitely some some pushback, especially from uh, Harvard's um, religious literacy program about my approach to this. Um, but luckily, I, I felt I got some vindication from uh, Stephen Prothero at, at Boston University, who, uh, when I encountered him um, earlier this year, um, he agreed more with my approach, and um, I also got some vindication with uh, some research just done by a uh, newly minted PhD in Kate Solis, who uh, went out and, and surveyed teachers and, and found that the experience of going out into communities uh, was probably the most important piece that they took away from that. So uh, I'm very careful, and um, uh, when I try to put together an experience, uh, I never want community members to have to be the expert, um, you know, as, as your podcast, you know, you, you only bring in, uh, people with, you know, deep academic understanding of, uh, some of these nuanced religions. I try to do the same words. We bring in a, uh, an expert and then I bring in a community members to, ex- to share their experience, especially the, you know, the darker sides, you know, the things that a student or community member wouldn't necessarily tell you about how they've been treated or, you know, uh, the fears that they have. So we try to do both. Um, and then at the same time, put them in their space, put them into a mosque. Uh, because the reality is, uh, and I hear this every single time we do it, teachers say, oh, I always drove by here, but I would never go into that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so feel, I, mean, I feel the same way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because like, in my classes, um, I would often I would have twenty to twenty five guest speakers per year come into my twelfth grade class, mm-hmm. you know, and we would go to several different optional field sites. But I would always have a ton of students and their parents who would show up because, and they would always say the exact same thing to me, like I've driven past here for forty years, and <laughs> I've I've never yeah. been inside. So like. I've had so many people say the exact same thing to me, like the boots on the ground approach of actually like going and meeting folks in your own community is just always just so powerful. And I can understand um, where the critique of that may lie, because if it's not carefully done, then I mean, it can get things can go sideways, but it never has for me. And I, you know, because I just came at it from an open-minded approach that right. um, I felt like it was a useful experience for everybody to have at least once in their life. And if they never do it again, they've already done it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and, and to speak for the other side, I think the the fear that some scholars have, right, is that if you take people to a reform synagogue, then they're going to only think Judaism is reform. And I think with, you know, just a little bit of prep work and and framing, you can prepare people to realize, listen, this is this community. This is this type of architecture. This is this interpretation. This does not represent this community as a whole. Yeah. And, and I found kind of teachers 
for the most part, get that concept. And I, and I imagine high school students also can, can comprehend that, you know, one uh, lens or one community is not the, you know, experience of a, a whole community. Absolutely. And, you know, like whenever I would do, say I had my Judaism unit and I had a guest speaker who was the assistant to the reform rabbi in our town and she came in and did a great Q&A. But then the next class, I had the um, the Chabad rabbi come in and he did a great Q&A. And then the, the, he was able to, they were able to compare and contrast the two different approaches so they could see the internal diversity within yeah. Judaism in their own town of only 100,000 people, you know. And so that was a really important thing. And I would do Christianity panels where there'd be four people of different denominations sitting in front of the room, and they would able to compare and contrast live with each other on stage about their traditions. So, I mean, I think if you really go to town on creating the experiences and highlighting that internal diversity within the conversations that absolutely high school students can grasp it totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you have a few favorite lessons in your teacher education course? Um, yeah. I, so the, the one that stands out to me the most, the, the kind of um, group that has always captured uh, my teacher's um, kind of attention have been their favorites has been our sick community. So we've we had um, we have a, um, a sick youth group called Sick Kid to Kid who. Uh, ever after the Wisconsin um, mass shooting uh, at the Gudwara came out with a, a kind of a PA kind of um, to, to try to educate people uh, about who six are, um, kind of a grassroots approach. And so I worked very closely with them from the beginning of the conception of this course. And actually, they predated in terms of doing teacher workshops um, my uh, course. And so what they do, uh, we show up, they, uh, the students actually put together a, um, entire, uh, program. So we show up at our boudoir in Rockville, uh, Maryland, and, and they get a chance to go through a service, do Q and a, um, share, uh, a meal with the sick community. Um, and it's definitely the highlight of the, the semester. Um, and I have to give so much credit to the community for going the extra mile to really create an experience that uh, highlights kind of everything about that community. And, and the impacts have been that uh, it's, it's stuck with educators. They now understand this community um, and they're able to kind of more, be more mindful to look out for uh, their six students in the, in the classroom to make sure they um, um, are having just the same experience as our other students. You mentioned that uh, your, your course and your work was highlighted a few years ago in the Washington Post and I read that article um, again the other day. I've read it several times over the last few years as you and I have uh, tried to nail down a date for having a conversation. But um, you called visiting houses of worship as kind of like visiting Disneyland for yourself. So, <laughs> you know, the teachers in your article have told you that those authentic experiences have been useful and powerful to them. But I'm curious about what those experiences do for you. Tell me about your intrigue with uh, houses of worship and holy sites, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, the, the nice thing about kind of looking at religion from, from several different lenses, and, you know, teaching U.S. history and, and teaching government now, um, is that you kind of, once you, you are passed by the awe of um, 
you know, a, a religion for the first time, you can start piecing together uh, other parts of the stories and, and you can really see a, a story of America playing out. So, mm. you know, just a couple. So we take uh, in the summertime, we go down to Atlanta, Maryland, where uh, there is this beautiful uh, $200 million uh, mosque complex that the Turkish government um, financed. But the stories you find out actually goes deeper in that. So you get this Turkish uh, style architecture in Maryland, but it goes back to um, early engineers working at NASA uh, and the Beltway here who purchased land and had it coded as a mosque in the 1970s hmm. with just the aspirations. And then less than a mile away, you have this incredible uh, Hindu temple with all of the South Indian uh, deities in it. And it's become a pilgrimage site for you know, um, American Hindus um, and even Canadians who come down to this this uh, temple, uh, and it just highlights the South Indian migration story to America. So, you know, just and then going from you know sites in the cities. Uh, so I like going into D.C. with our teachers in the summertime and, and seeing some of these old traditional uh, churches that are still um, able to kind of hold on there in the. Um, a city was kind of people have moved out to the suburbs. So kind of looking at that. So, you know, we went to uh, a church where uh, every American president has gone and, and Lincoln used to sit in the back pew um, and just kind of get some relief um, during the Civil War. We went to uh, an American, uh, an African-American uh, Methodist church just in the heart of D.C. Uh, and to look at the history where Frederick uh, Douglass actually attended. So, yeah, just this little cool, neat things that kind of show uh, this American religious uh, story, which, uh, as you pointed out with Charles Haynes, is a very unique and um, really cool experiment that uh, America launched um, back in the 1700s that we're still kind of grappling with today. Yeah, and I'm thinking about a recent episode of the podcast that I did with uh, Professor Sherry Rabin from Oberlin College, where she talked about how the 1789 Constitution changed the traje trajectory of lives for um, American Jews during that time, and how that was like one of the first things that was ever written that uh, constitutionally enshrined their status as citizens of a country. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was so cool. Yeah. Um, no. By any chance, did you read the comments on that Washington Post article? I, when it first came out, um, you know, you see the um, couple of the the kind of you know the the misconceptions about the First Amendment. But then, you know, I always like seeing a, a few people. Actually, I think I had a teacher um, stand up to kind of explain. I try not to get into uh, the author of that. Had told me early on that you know. Um, don't read the comments. Um, um, so I, I tend to avoid the comment sections of, of articles. Well, I, I went into that belly of the beast <laughs> yesterday and, uh, I highly recommend not. Um, it's like a hundred, it's like a hundred plus every across the entire spectrum of what you would imagine. Uh, it was pretty wild. And I had a little bit of that as well because I was in an, in the newspaper back in Missouri when I started this podcast and whenever I would have like a Tibetan Buddhist monk come and visit the classroom <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was really intense feeling like you were, um, the subject of scorn and having people say I was like condemned and things like that within the comments of my own local newspaper when really I just wanted to create an authentic experience for young people in our community. 
Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I tell people this all the time, you know, what you, Greg, did, um, you know, where you were compared to what I do is completely different in terms of, um, you know, the strength it takes and, and having to be on point. You know, I was given um, a huge leeway with being in the, the demographic community that I am. I mean, this community understands uh, the value of, um, you know, multiculturalism. They see and, you know, have been living in a community that's been thriving, you know, this area, you know, even to the Great Recession uh, was not as hard hit. So there's a, a wide variety of things that I know that uh, I've had the luxury in terms of teaching this. So I'm, I'm very cognizant that, you know, the teachers out there in, in other parts, even in my own state, um, you go north, east, or south, uh, the challenges that you encounter and, and how quickly you can feel isolated and alone. Uh, and I think that's, you know, what's great about this podcast uh, and the experts you bring in. You, you normalize this experience and you, you sub- create a support network for uh, educators to be able to um, go out and do these type of work. Shout out to all the teachers out there listening. Please write to me and say hello. I want to know who you are, where you are, et cetera. Let me know if I can help. And Chris, probably you would be willing to help too, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, and, and more importantly, we definitely get to the, the experts. I mean, the, the Charles Haynes, Ben Marcus, uh, the legal experts who uh, can definitely set up the framework and, and make sure you do this in a way that you really can't, um, can't blow up in your face, yeah. um, at least legally. Yeah, well, and you know, I... I talked to Ben uh, a little bit last week and we were, and then I noticed that he was going to be on all things considered with Audie, yeah. Audie Cornish. And I listened to that segment and he was great. And I'm like, man, yeah. Ben is going to be like a leading voice in this. This is amazing. Yeah. To be able absolutely. to like, to be able to know the people who are leading the, uh, the, the national dialogue is just, I feel so lucky. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and they're reaching out, you know, um, you know, Ben Marcus, I remember when he showed up in D.C., and, and he has worked uh, incredibly hard to um, build networks and to reach out to educators. So, um, and, and the network's growing, and um, the resources, I think, are also uh, becoming more apparent. So um, I think the, the goal, of course, is to make this more normal uh, so that eventually these are not anomaly-type situations yeah so you and i share the trait that our high school students weren't able to guess our religious affiliations at the end of our courses which i loved i thought that was so funny in the article um and i'm really i'm really proud of that because many many of my students actually guessed that i was baha'i and many guessed that i was a jewish buddhist kind of like a sharon salzberg or mark epstein but i'm not and Something that stands out in my memory is a uh, school I once taught in was con- when they were considering me for the class to teach it. It was between me, another guy who had gone to seminary, and another guy who was a born again evangelical, and they were considering all three of us to teach this class on religion. And they they picked me, and you know, so in my view, I did my best uh, to not like be a fa- not not have any like favoritism within my units and study. And the result was that students couldn't really guess what I was. And then I saw in the article about you in the post that you converted to Judaism. And I'm curious if you can tell listeners a little bit about your conversion experience. Because that is uh, converting to Judaism is 
is pretty unique. And I would imagine that a lot of people aren't really aware of that process. Um, so how did you go about doing that? Um, and then you can also comment on the whole guessing your religion thing in the classroom if you yeah. want to. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I always approached religion from a very belief-centric um, uh, approach from a young age where, um, you know, if you believe it, you practice it. Um, so I was raised Catholic, um, you know, a classic uh, Irish Catholic um, upbringing, both my parents, uh, and, I, and I enjoyed it. I had a great experience, um, and I learned quite a bit, went to Catholic schools. So it's definitely uh, my religious identity today is not a knock on my, my childhood experiences. But, um, you know, when you get into the public school system, uh, I always kind of saw a kind of that idea of uh, being a secular uh, type of teacher. So I, I always kind of approach my religious um, from a very personal uh, way. Um, and then my outward appearance is very much uh, differently. Uh, so my story to Judaism came from uh, my relationship with my wife, who uh, was raised Jewish um, in the same area. We have a, a healthy and, and large Jewish population in the D.C. area. Um, we started dating. I was still uh, Catholic at the time. Um, we started talking about children, um, got engaged, and um, I don't know what happened. So we got married. We had a, a, a non-religious uh, wedding. Um, and then when our first son uh, was being ready to be born, uh, I wanted to raise our, our, our kids Jewish. So I was not Jewish at the time. Um, so our first son was born in 2010. Um, but Judaism has a lot of very family-centric uh, uh, rituals. It's very much, you know, around the dinner table. And um, so over time, as my son was um, growing up, um, I realized that, you know, in the classic kind of patriarchal uh, roots of many of our world religions that the, the male of a household has certain rituals that are kind of built in. And I was kind of an outsider in a uh, house where my my kids were going to be born. So before our second son was born, I decided to convert to Judaism. I found um, from a uh, religious experience that, that uh, it, it was a, a welcoming uh, belief system. I really liked the approach that Judaism has to um, the kind of the argumental side and, uh, you know, not clear answers. So I was attracted to that. So went through the ritual process of, uh, converting through a conservative, uh, rabbi who was my wife's uh, childhood rabbi. Um, and that took about a year to go through that process. Um, and then it was before our, our second son, but it's been a, it's a learning process, you know, mm. Judaism has, you know, a whole language to it. It has, uh, so I, I do still feel like uh, somewhat of an outsider, although the community has been very welcoming and they definitely don't treat me that way. It's there's so much to learn about uh, a community um, and its rich history. So and it's, it's it's something I uh, hopefully will get better and better with. Um, but, uh, yeah. Awesome. How did you feel about the not uh, about your students not being able to guess what your tradition is? Yeah. So when I first started that, it was, you know, it's a classic uh, litmus test kind of uh, to make sure that I wasn't <laughs> showing favoritism, wasn't, you know, the, the, right, the biggest fear about teaching is, is you're going to step into that First Amendment and uh, create a Supreme Court case. So, oh, my gosh, um, I know it's terrifying. 
Um, so that was always the, that was the litmus test at first. And, you know, after the first couple of tries, I passed. Um, um, you know, it, it, it was great that people couldn't tell. But it, it, over time, I, you know, I also pointed out that, you know, if you could tell that that's not a bad thing either. Right. I mean. Uh, a woman wearing hijab could teach this class or a, a man could wear a, a yarmulke wearing this class and still do a great job. Absolutely. Right? You don't have to. Um, yeah. Do you have any future plans with regards to uh, religious studies, education, teacher education, religious literacy, et cetera? Like what are you, what are some of your goals? Yeah. So one of the first goals was the, the trying to make um, these programs more lasting and, um, um, create a, a larger teacher network of facilitators. So um, this past fall was the first time that I didn't teach our course in Montgomery County. So I reached out to a, a former student and um, uh, got him to uh, ask him if he would like to teach the class. And so um, Jonathan Rivera took over the course and did a phenomenal job. And that was pretty exciting. I think anytime you have a, an idea being able to see it successfully um, transition to another person and you can step back and it, it still uh, goes well was really a, a relief and uh, exciting to see that this is something that, you know, is not unique to just a person. It can be um, successfully implemented with a, a, a variety of educators. And then, of course, like anything, you know, just like a podcast is, is seeing it grow uh, in a authentic and, um, you know, um, meaningful way. So I left public schools and went to a Catholic school, which is part of the Sacred Heart Network, which is an amazing uh, network of 140 schools worldwide, um, you know, 20 just here in the United States and Canada. And so I think over time, my hope is that I become more comfortable in this new community that, um, I can uh, bring some of this, um, my experiences to them and, and create some opportunities for our students in the uh, Catholic school system uh, to better know their um, classmates and, and people in their communities. Awesome. Well, uh, Chris, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? Yeah, I'd say Twitter. I mean, that's the place where you and I yep. first met. It's it's definitely, I think, my... Um, my uh, identity in terms of the work I do in religion. So I'm at uh, Mr. Murray tweets um, on Twitter. Um, and that'd probably be the best way to reach out. Awesome. Well, Chris, I've had a really good time with you today and I'm super glad that, uh, like I said at the beginning that we managed to make it work, that we stuck with each other and that we rescheduled multiple times and that we are finally able to come together on this very, very cold day in January <laughs> of 2020. So, um, thank you so much for your time and, uh, sharing your expertise with, uh, with all of my listeners. Thanks, Greg. It's been an honor and, um, uh, I'm always blown away by the, the hard work you do and um, sticking with this uh, program and getting up to, you know, episode 145, you know, plus. Some, so that's yeah, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a wild, wild journey. So thank you for being a part of it. And uh, it's been great having you. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. Classical Ideas is produced by me. Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. 
You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.